Well, as a church, um, in the coming weeks, we're going to be observing Lent, and um, this is going to be, uh, throughout the weeks, each week we're going to be fasting over a different thing that may be pulling our hearts away from Him, so this is going to be an uh, opportunity for us to uh, focus our heart and affections towards Him in this Lent season. And for this first week, we're going to be fasting from food, which actually starts, Lent starts on Wednesday, and so um, on Wednesday... And for the remainder of the week, um, we'll be fasting either from a meal a day or from one day of that week in, entirely. So um, as we uh, launch into this Lent season, I do want to issue us um, a prayer of dependency that I'm going to read over us. And so let's um, take a moment and pray our hearts to be dependent upon him in this season. God, we thank you for the season of Lent where we can come before you and declare with one voice our dependency on you. You alone sustain. You alone provide. You alone are worthy of all praise. And God, you say in your word that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Forgive us for putting ultimate worth on things created rather than you, the creator. The emptiness and discomfort we feel when we are hungry is much deeper than the need for food. It's a longing for eternity that has been present since the exile from the garden. And while we step into a season of decrease, may the inescapable decline of our bodies here not be wasted. May it do its appropriate and necessary work, inclining our hearts and souls ever more vigorously towards your coming kingdom. And while we will feel more inclined to pray for relief and fulfillment, give us also patience for the enduring of whatever hardships our journeys entail. Give us humility to ask and to receive day by day your mercies as our needs require. Where our dependence on you and others increases, let us receive with grace, for you ever meet us and uphold us in our weakness. And in those moments when our bodies betray our trust, work in us by our own hard experience a more active and Christ-like compassion for the sufferings of others. And with the helplessness of a child or of a paralytic, may we open our mouths to receive the sustaining power of your grace, fully dependent on you for our next step, our next meal, our next breath. You will sustain your creation like the flowers of the field or the birds of the sky. May the decline of our bodies incline our hearts and souls ever more vigorously towards your coming kingdom. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, Adam. Uh, as you leave this morning, um, whether you go this way or if you go out the middle, the, those devotionals are on tables, and so you'll be able to pick them up. There's one, not just like one per family, there's one for every adult uh, and every student in your family. And the reason you're going to want one for each of those peop- each individual is that as you go through, there are opportunities to like journal into uh, the actual guide. So you'll want your own so that you're able to do that. Um, like Adam said, every week we'll fast from something. And as we fast, there'll be like a focus that we're setting our hearts on. So every week sets that up for you. The guide is very clear. And on Sundays, we'll kind of regroup together while we're here at church. Sound good? So grab those on your way out. Starts on Wednesday, either 24-hour period um, of fasting from food or one meal a day, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then we'll regroup and launch into the next thing next Sunday. Cool? Awesome. If you got a Bible, open it up. 
We're going to finish Luke chapter 4 this morning, which is verse 31 down to 44. And what we're going to see is Jesus proving in action what he proclaimed at Nazareth in the passage that we just saw last week. So last week, particularly verses 18 and 19, Jesus uses this passage from the book of Isaiah to proclaim his identity, that he is Messiah, he is the king. And he gave evidence of what his kingly ministry, his messianic ministry was going to look like while he was here on earth. And now we're going to see him put that into practice. And what we're going to see is that the king rules all things, natural and supernatural, by the power of his word. It is the king's word that is authoritative. We're going to see that in his teaching. We're going to see that as he drives out an unclean demonic spirit this morning. And we're going to see it as he heals. There's a difference between the king's word having authority and your word and its limited authority. Think about boiling water. Like you want to make some tea or something, or you're making pasta and you need to boil water on the stove. You can't just look at water and say boil and have it jump to attention. You would have to actually act, get the pot, fill it up, put it on the stove, turn on the stove, wait for it to get hot enough to actually boil. That is not how Jesus's word works. When he speaks, what he says happens. When he commands, creation snaps to obedience. And that is the way the word of God works all throughout history. Think about creation. God said, let there be light. Light did not argue. Light did not hesitate. Light sprang into existence. God said, let there be creatures in the water or creatures upon the land. There was no fight. There was no having to work with his hands to make those. Creatures came into being in the water and in the land. We're going to see that same authoritative word today in Jesus' teaching, in his interaction with a demon, his casting out of a demon, and his healing of a woman with a high fever. The king rules all things, natural and supernatural, by the power of his word. He is authoritative. Let's read Luke 4, 31 down to 44. If you've got a Bible, just follow along with me. It says this, Then he, that's Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. Amazement came over them all. And they were saying to one another, what is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power and they come out. And the news about him began to go out to every place in the vicinity. After he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. As he laid hands on each one of them, he healed them. Also demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. When it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place, but the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, it is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray.
God, thank you for this morning and for your word. Lord, I pray that your word would be powerful and authoritative here among us. God, that as we see what it is that you have spoken in your word, God, that your people would be submissive to that. God, that we would humble ourselves underneath your rule and your reign and we would allow your word to be powerful and authoritative in our lives. God, as we look at what it is that you have to say here in the gospel of Luke, would its words be powerful and authoritative for us? God, would we find comfort in them? Would we find encouragement in them? God, would you convict us by your word if that need be the case, Lord? Would you grow us in our dependence upon you? Would you grow us in our submission to you by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit within us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. The king rules all things natural and supernatural by the power of his word. If you're a note taker uh, and you wrote that phrase down, either underline, circle, make it bold, all things. Like when I say all things, I mean all things. That's what scripture displays for us, that the king of the kingdom rules all things, natural and supernatural. The kingdom of God is a a recurring theme in the gospels and throughout the New Testament. And so understanding the kingdom of God is essential for understanding what Jesus, as the king of the kingdom, what he looks like and what he does. It's also essential for us to understand what it means to be the people of God who live in submission to his rule and his reign, that live in submission to the kingdom. And in case you are maybe inclined to think I'm making a bigger deal out of the kingdom of God over the last couple of weeks than the Bible does, Jesus is going to talk explicitly about the kingdom of God in Luke just this one gospel here in chapter four. And then he's going to talk about the kingdom of God in chapters six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 13, 14, 16, 17, 18, 19, 21, 22, and 23. The gospel of Luke is 24 chapters long. Jesus's ministry starts in the middle of chapter four and then really comes to an end at the point at which he's arrested and then goes on to be crucified. Jesus talks about, preaches about, explains, demonstrates, mentions the kingdom of God in virtually every chapter of his ministry in the gospel of Luke. And so it's really important for us to understand what the kingdom of God is. And we touched on this last week, but let me just put sort of the basics up on the screen. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about a place. We're not talking about a people. We're not talking about just like a set of laws. We're talking about God's rule and reign over all things, over all things spiritual and physical, over all things, moving them to the accomplishment of his will. That is the kingdom of God. And when we talk about Jesus and we see how he introduces himself and how he works throughout his ministry, Jesus is identifying himself clearly undeniably as the king of that kingdom. He is God the Son who rules and reigns over all things, spiritual and physical, moving them toward the accomplishment of his will. And then his call to his people is submission. To allow the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God to be what controls our lives. David Garland says it this way, humans do not bring in God's reign, build God's kingdom, hasten its final consummation, or hinder its advance. We submit to it. That's our responsibility. So we're going to see 
the king's authority this morning, his authority in teaching, his authority over evil and the supernatural, his authority over the natural world and the effects of sin. And then we're going to see what is our response to that authority. And it will be easy for us this morning to get our hearts and eyes and minds a little bit sidetracked. And the reason for that is that in order to talk about Jesus' authority in these passages, we're going to have to talk about Satan and evil and demons. And it's very easy to either obsess over those realities or to just try to be dismissive of those realities. The goal this morning is for us to see the king to see his authority, to see his beauty, to see his glory. We're going to have more opportunities in the gospel of Luke to see Jesus interacting with, exercising authority over demons. And we'll deal with kind of the practical questions about what does that mean for today and how would demons interact in our world and what does that mean for me specifically. We'll, kind of, we'll handle those questions in the future. We're not going to ignore them. But this morning, I just want us to see the king and how it is that he reigns supreme over those forces. We're also going to have uh, some conversation about healing. Jesus's exercise of authority over the natural sickness and the effects of sin, which is what sickness is. Same principle. We'll talk about healing and what that looks like today and what that means for followers of Jesus in the future, because we're going to have plenty of opportunities to see Jesus healed. This morning, I just want us to see and to be able to marvel at the authority of the king and his power to undo the effects of sin. The king rules all things, natural and supernatural, by the power of his word. Look at verses 31 and 32. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. The first thing we see in this passage, and it's actually something we saw in the last passage, And that's that the word of the king is authoritative over all things. It's Jesus' teaching that really starts to capture people's attention. In the previous passage, it was a Sabbath day and Jesus was teaching in a synagogue in Nazareth. We're told that he went down to Capernaum. In our minds, that must mean south. In Luke's mind, that means literally he went from a higher elevation to a lower elevation and he's teaching in another synagogue on another Sabbath, this time at Capernaum. And the city of Capernaum is going to become sort of the ministry hub for Jesus's early ministry. Everything that takes place from the middle of chapter four all the way to close to the end of chapter nine are like spokes on a wheel and Capernaum is the hub. He returns to this city multiple times. The people at Nazareth, we're told in verse 22, were amazed by Jesus's teaching. Then we're told in verses 31 and 32 that the people of Capernaum are astonished by it. In both places and throughout Jesus's ministry elsewhere, people are transfixed by the authority of Jesus's teaching. He opens his mouth to speak and crowds flock to hear him because there's authority. It's different than the scribes and the Pharisees of his day. They taught mostly by quoting others. They got their authority for their message by deriving it from someone else who had spoken before them. That's not the case with Jesus. He has authority in and of himself. People know it, they can sense it, they can feel it, they can hear it when he speaks. This is God the Son speaking, and the word of the Son is the word of God, and the word of God, the King, is authoritative. The universe knows that and obeys it. 
Think about creation. The people at Capernaum know it. The people at Nazareth knew it. But as we're going to see, and as we know from our own experience, our obedience to the authoritative word of God is a fickle thing. Unlike light at creation, and God says, let there be light, and light springs into existence, God's word for us and its authority is much more of a wrestle. Our flesh makes it so that we hear the word of God. We might cognitively, intellectually understand that it's authoritative, but my flesh wants me to be the authority. And now there's a wrestle. And it's why submission is a hard thing. Obedience is a hard thing. When God creates or in just sort of the natural world, there is no fight over obedience. God says, you're a bumblebee, make some honey. That bee makes honey for the rest of its life to the glory of God. God tells me, this is my good command, my rule and reign over your life and my flesh rises up because I want to be the authority. And now that we fight over submission. We're gonna see that throughout Jesus's ministry, but it doesn't change the reality. The word of God is authoritative over all things. And that means the word of God is authoritative for the church. The king's word is authoritative for his people. What's that mean for us? Well, it means that the word of God is the authority of the church collective. That reality has defined the Protestant church, which just means the non-Catholic church, since the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. We do not ascribe authority to an individual, to a pope or to a church leader. We recognize and live in response to the fact that it is the word of the king. It's the word of God that is authoritative. And so I have leadership at this church by God's gifting and his calling and by the recognition of this local body of believers, believers, but I do not wield ultimate authority in this place. It's the word of God that wields ultimate authority. His word in his word alone. Collectively, the word of God is authoritative for us. The word of God is also the authority of the church as individuals. When a pastor stands up and preaches and you feel conviction or you feel encouragement, you are not convicted or you are not encouraged necessarily by the voice of the one standing up front done right, you're convicted or encouraged by the authority of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to take that word and impress it upon your heart. When I stand up here on a Sunday morning, my aim is not for you to think that you need to respond to something that I said. My aim is to hold out the word of God and let it be powerful and let it be authoritative and let you respond to the word of God. My prayer on Sunday mornings is that whoever stands in this place, which primarily is me, that we hold out the word of God and all of us collectively as a church are astonished at God's word, not the person speaking. And that maybe first and foremost, that me in this spot primarily on Sunday mornings, that I would be astonished by the word of God. Because if I'm not and I'm preaching it, then probably what I'm doing is trying to get you to be astonished at me. This is the authority. And it's the authority for us collectively as a church. It's the authority for us as individuals. And that means that in the future, when you're looking for another church or when you're out on the internet or purchasing books or watching videos and listening to other people preach, the question you ought to ask yourself is, who is the authority? 
Is the person that you're listening to or that you're kind of thinking about, are they setting themselves up as the authority because of their opinions or because of their position or are they holding out the word of God as the authority? You can usually tell pretty quickly if it is a person's opinions that they're sharing and then they're using the word of God as a prop or if it's the word of God that they're trying to open up and allowing it to be powerful. The word of God is no prop. It's not a prop for anybody. It is authoritative. It has power in and of itself over all things. Think through that when you listen to someone. That's why we preach the way that we do in the style that we do here. We just open up God's word. We take it in one large chunk or we take it in pieces of larger chunks. And our hope is that the word of God speaks and then works in power. The king's word is authoritative. And then you see that authority in practice immediately following. Verse 33, in the synagogue, there's Jesus speaking. There's a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent and come out. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out without hurting him. Amazement came over them all, and they were saying to one another, what is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And news about him began to go out to every place in the vicinity. Look at verse 41. Also, demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. The supernatural forces of evil are subject to the king's authority. Jesus speaks, and what do the demons do? They do exactly what he told them to do. He says, come out, they come out. He says not to speak, they don't speak. In the future, he's going to say, go into those pigs, they're going into the pigs. Jesus does not have to do any wrestling. He doesn't have to do any begging. He doesn't have to do any bargaining. He doesn't have to do any sort of formula or anything like that. He speaks, demons obey. And that is the nature of the king's authority, even over the supernatural forces of evil. In the gospels, the presence of demons and the repeated demonstration of Jesus's authority over them ultimately serves to display to us the reality that the rule and the reign of God extends over all things. If you're a note taker and you wrote down the main point, underline all things again, because included in all things is Satan and demons themselves. The goal this morning is to keep our eyes on the glory and the power and the beauty of Jesus. But talking a little bit about Satan and demons and evil will help us in that goal. We cannot be blind to the fact that the rule and the reign of God has direct, fierce opposition. Every physical kingdom that's ever existed has had an opponent. And that maybe the easiest way to think about this is to think about the, the movie The Lion King. Everything in my life comes back to Disney. There's a scene, an early part of the movie, where Simba is supposed to be like some kind of like teenage rambunctious, you know, lion and he wakes up Mufasa. It's early in the morning and he says, dad, you promised. And Mufasa takes him up to the very top of Pride Rock and they have the conversation where they're looking out over the savanna there. And Mufasa says, Simba, 
Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Simba says, well, what about those shadowy places? We don't ever go to the shadowy places, but I thought a king could do whatever he wanted. Mufasa is king. Simba will be king. But there's a counter kingdom. There's opposition. Scar, Mufasa's brother, his pride, he rises up, he goes and he gets himself some followers, right? Some hyenas, and they're going to resist the rule and the reign of the king. And you get this kind of weird scene where in a very volcanic portion of Africa, Scar with these hyenas are singing, you know, no king, no king, la 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 la, you idiots. There will be a king. I will be king. Now, don't push the Lion King theology too far, but the general principle stands. That same dynamic is what exists when it comes to the rule and reign of God and then this counter kingdom that opposes it. Satan, Lucifer, rises up in his pride, stands against the rule and the reign of sovereign king, God gets himself some followers and some angels, and then God casts them out of his, his heavenly council in heaven there, sends them to the earth. And now Satan and all of his minions, if you will, these demons, they exist here in this place for one purpose, to oppose and reject the rule and the reign of God. And since his fall from heaven... He ultimately wants other people to both submit to him and resist the rule and the reign of the true king. But there's only one king, one king who has ruled, does rule, and will rule for all of eternity. And unlike the Lion King, we don't live in this like dualistic sort of universe where good and evil are fighting it out and who's going to win and there's uncertainty about it. No, There's one king. Read the end of your Bible. We know who's going to win. Look at Jesus on the cross. We see who wins. There's one king, and Satan and all the forces of evil are subject to his rule. That's the way it works. And yet we have all these questions that still kind of swirl out there about demons. So let me give you like some basic demonology here. Demons are angels that fell with Lucifer. Satan. They're of a different created order than humans. And that matters because as angels, they saw with their own eyes directly the glory of God. Having risen up in their pride, been cast out of heaven, they have no chance at salvation. Demons cannot be saved. They know who Jesus is. They don't worship him. They want to resist him. They will not, cannot ever be redeemed. They're limited in number. There's a fixed number of angels that fell with Lucifer and they're not just spawning more demons now. They have limited power. They're not omnipotent. They have limited knowledge. They don't know all things. They have limited presence. They're not omnipresent like God is. They exist for the purpose of resisting, opposing, and rejecting God's rule and reign. And they know their place in relation to the king. Look at verse 41. Demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, you are the son of God. They understand. They know. Look at verse 34. Leave us alone. What would you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One 
of God. They understand that their days are numbered. Now, they don't know when the final day is coming. They're questioning here, is today the day? Like, have you come to destroy us today? You're the Holy One. They understand their relation to the king. Ultimately, by the force of his authority, they obey. Maybe the best way to think about this would be to think about lions again, but this time you go to the zoo. You're looking into, whether from up top or through like some glass, you're looking into the place where the lions are held and you see them running around in there and it appears that they're pretty free. Who's actually in control? The zoo. They want to put the lion away, they'll put the lion away. Lion eats when the zoo says he can eat, goes where the zoo says he can go, and he cannot get beyond the boundaries. That is the way that Satan works. What was that? I usually don't hear a lot from up here, but that was both beautiful and eerie. Okay. It's as though, back to the point, it's as though Satan is on a leash. Demons are on a leash. They have certain latitude and can go no further because there is one king. We see that throughout the Gospels. You see it throughout all of Scripture. Think about Job. That opening scene. Job can inflict who God tells him to and how far God allows him to go, and he can go no further. Before we move on, let me make a couple final comments. There are two temptations when it comes to Satan, demons, in the presence of literal spiritual evil. One is to discount evil's reality. We do that at our own peril. This is probably the default mode within like uh, the West is to think these things aren't actually real and we kind of shift them to the side and we do that to our own danger. The other side of that is to obsess over it, to overemphasize evil's ability, and that is to our own peril. We tend to either ignore or obsess over these things, and neither is ultimately helpful. As I said earlier, we'll talk about some specifics with this later, but today I just want to encourage you, see Jesus. The king is ultimately authoritative. The goal going forward from this morning is not to fixate on Satan or demons. The goal is to fix our eyes on the king. And these passages in the gospels help us to marvel at him rather than to tremble before Satan. Because the king is ultimately in control. Look at verses 38 to 40. After he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. As he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. In the same way that the king's authority extends over the supernatural and the forces of evil, the king's authority also extends over the natural world and the effects of sin. The phrase used here in the Greek about Simon's mother-in-law is not just that she was kind of sick. Luke uses a technical term because he's a doctor, a technical medical term to describe that she is very sick with a high fever. We're not told what she has, but she isn't the kind of sick that like you just don't feel great and then when someone shows up, you could muster the energy to all of a sudden be better. She's very sick and when Jesus rebukes the fever, 
it leaves. Supernatural, animate objects like demons, they obey the authority of Jesus. Now we have a natural, inanimate object, a fever, and it obeys Jesus. In fact, she's so completely healed that she pops back up and instantly starts to serve. And later that evening, verse 40, the sun starts to set. That detail matters because it's a Sabbath. Sabbath goes from sunset on one evening to sunset on the next. And those people who had sick individuals as neighbors or friends or family who needed to get to Jesus, they couldn't carry them or help them get there on the Sabbath. So as soon as the sun starts to set, they gather up these people who have various illnesses that need to be healed and they rush them over to Jesus as the sun is setting. And what does he do? He heals every single one of them. Sickness is an effect of the fall. It's an effect of sin. Now that's not to say that you're sick because of your specific sins, that you told a lie when you were seven and now you have this illness. That's not how sickness works. We get sick because of sin in general. Our bodies are subject to decay and illness and all the effects of the fall because of the presence of sin in the world. And if there were no sin, there would be no sickness. There was no sickness in the garden. There will be no sickness in eternity. Here, the king of the kingdom is overcoming the effects of sin. He rules all things, natural and supernatural, by the power of his word. I mentioned this last week, but I want to push us to see both the divine and the human fullness of Jesus, the full beauty of his person. When we see his authority, we see the divine. And it's easy for us to see that and marvel at it, like Ryan said at the opening of our service, the immensity of who God is and who Jesus is, we should be absolutely floored by those things. But don't miss the intimacy of who Jesus is. Look at verse 40. The sun was setting. All those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. And as he laid hands on each one of them, he healed them. Catch that phrase. He touches every single person that's brought to him to be healed. How many is it? I'm not sure. But in future instances, we get the impression that the crowds are so great that they're literally like crushing in on him. At one point, in fact, very soon, he's teaching in a house and it's so full of people that there's a person paralyzed and his friends are carrying him on a mat and they can't even get into the house. So how many people are present here? I'm not entirely sure. But Jesus touches every single one of them. Leprosy, blindness, festering, oozing wounds. He's not deterred by any of those effects of sin. He's drawn to these people who want to be helped and he helps them. That is the nature of Jesus Christ. The effects of sin are no deterrent to him. He is drawn to the people who understanding the reality and the effects of their sin long for him to come and to touch them and to heal them. The same is true today. The very sin that puts us at eternal odds with a holy and a righteous God is what draws the gracious, merciful, saving heart of God toward us in Christ. That sin is what ultimately compelled Jesus to the cross. And that's where I want to end this morning. When we see Jesus authoritative with his word, 
authoritative over the spiritual forces of evil, authoritative over the effects of sin. It ought to draw our mind to the cross because that is where he ultimately displays the fullness of his power in all of those ways. At the cross, Jesus crushes the power of Satan. At the cross, Jesus undoes the consequences of sin, chiefly Satan's most devastating consequence of sin, and that is death. And at the cross, Jesus grants us access to his kingdom. And thanks to his work on the cross, we can submit to his reign, to his rule, and have the guarantee of eternity in the presence of a perfect king. When the Bible calls God judge, King, father, husband, G.B. Caird, he was a pastor in England in the early 1900s, says this, it is in the first instance using the human known to cast light on the divine unknown, particularly God's attitude toward his people. And so what do we see at the cross? We see the king. We see a king at his very best using his power his authority for the good of his people. We see a king at his very best who's willing to go to war, not at the expense of his people, but on behalf of his people for their ultimate good. At the cross, the perfect king offers himself to secure our good, crushing Satan, undoing the effects of sin, and making entrance into his kingdom not only possible, but a delight for his people. Demons and fevers submit to just the raw force of Jesus' authority. We see the king on the cross in our place and we're wooed into submission out of the strength of his kindness and his love. That's what we have in Jesus. He exercises authority over evil. He exercises authority over the effects of sin and then it will be his authoritative word that declares you righteous. That's the beauty of the king. We see what he does in his ministry. It ought to shift our minds to what he does on the cross. Demons know who Jesus is. They submit to his authority, but not out of worship. A fever knows that the king is authoritative, and it submits to his authority, but not out of a willing sense of worship. We come into the kingdom by submitting ourselves to God's rule. We see the love of God and his grace toward us in Jesus and we are moved to submission. It is his love that propels us. We submit to the rule of the king because we see the overwhelming kindness of his love. Jesus longs to come to you in your brokenness, touch you with his redeeming love and power and then spiritually heal you for eternity. He has the power to physically heal. He has the power to spiritually and physically overcome the effects of sin, and he will come back one day and put an end to their existence altogether. Amen? Amen. Grab the little cup that's underneath your chair there. If you're at home, grab your communion elements. In communion, we look to the cross and we're reminded of these realities. If you've got this cup, you pull the first piece of cellophane and you get the wafer. You pull the second piece of cellophane and it'll open up the juice for you. In communion, we're called to reflection. Remembering the love of God displayed in Jesus. Remembering his authority and his grace. Remembering that it is his authoritative word 
in substitute for us that's ultimately going to declare us righteous. When we stand before the throne, Jesus is going to declare that you are his. And that word will be authoritative. At communion, we're called to repentance. Looking inward to see the places where we may still be tempted to submit to something other than the gracious rule and the reign of God. And we see those places where we want to be the authority and we repent. We confess. In communion, we're called to recommitment because at the cross, we see a full picture of what Jesus' submission to the rule and the reign of God required of him. And thus... We're compelled by his grace to commit ourselves to the same kind of submission. So I just want you to take a moment here. Reflect. Allow yourself to think about the truth of the cross and the depth of God's love displayed for you there. You may need to repent because there's something in your life where you know for absolute certain that you're not living in submission to the rule and the reign of the authority of the king. Or you might just need to make a humble recommitment. Not like recommitting yourself to be saved again, but simply recommitting yourself to walking humbly in submission to the king's rule and the king's reign. In one hand, you have a wafer. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Jesus Christ, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. You also have the juice, the cup, which is representative of the blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for you, the blood of Jesus Christ that's ultimately going to cover you and wash you clean from your sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that was spilled for you. Take and drink in remembrance of him. At communion, we look to the cross and we are given a tangible picture of what we sang at the start of our service. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. Communion also gives the people of God the opportunity to stand before the cross and declare, all hail, King Jesus. All hail, Lord of heaven and earth. Let's sing that together. <laughs>